0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and today reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation. Well, last time we talked about the millennium and all the good things that are going to happen there. This time we're having to leave the millennium, although we'll stay in that same chapter. Chapter 20, verses 7 to 10 we start with. A brief look we had last time at God's special day, the millennium. Now this wonderful time ends, and there's a new beginning. Before we move on in chapter 10, chapter 20, it's important to note that with all of the activities encountered so far, there's no mention of a new heaven and a new earth. Peter seems to say that they will come immediately after Jesus comes. Instead, the prophetic scriptures that I have shown point to a renewed or restored old earth and old Jerusalem. The conflict is also pointed out in Isaiah, who also seems to place the totally new creation right next to the coming of Jesus. We submit to you, because John does, via angelic visitation, that this totally new heaven and earth will not come until the planet has had its full seven days, the seventh one being the 1,000 years of rest that we call the millennium. As we approach and read verse 11 in this chapter, Authorization for all of this will be clear. But let's talk now about verses 7 and 8. The Restrainer doing his work for a thousand years. The earth takes its rest. Joy abounds. Jesus rules. It's a perfect government. Could anyone not love a world governed by Jesus? Yes, many. As many cringe at the idea now. And when Satan is released from his pit prison, he immediately seeks out these malcontents. Notice that there are still nations in the earth, and they all belong to Jesus, but they are separate entities still, perhaps all having transferred over to the one pure language spoken of in Zephaniah, Zephaniah three 3.9. Satan, Satan seems to have a remnant of his own, though, in each nation. He deceives them as is his wont, See his work in 12.9, as he deceived the whole world. Truths are once more twisted into his way of thinking, and bitter, resentful people who dared disobey Jesus during his reign and therefore suffered his rebuke are ready for a new leader. Nations mentioned by name are Gog and Magog the focal points of Ezekiel's prophecy of end-time matters. At first, we want to reinterpret Ezekiel and allow that he's actually talking about a post-millennial war. Some of the phrases do fit, but the prophecy must be at the coming of Christ for it's connected to the great earthquake and to the supper of flesh, a, a time of setting up of God's glory among the nations, after the captives of Jacob are brought back and mercy is shown to all Israel. These Familiar images have long since passed by our present vision. I believe Gog was formerly a mighty leader of a far northern nation in relation to Israel. He must arrive on our own horizon if we are to be assuredly in the last days. He descends from his place for an all-out assault on Jesus and whatever Jesus wants. He is the, perhaps the king of the north in Daniel 11 the one whose stirrings bother the man of sin. It's quite possible that he is defeated at the hands of Jesus himself in Israel. He's buried there, and for seven months all the remains left by those birds will be buried with him. But his name, as well as the land of Magog, his own land, lives on for those thousand years. His people are humiliated. Many of them carry the resentment through the millennium. It's a most natural place for Satan to raise an army. Josephus, who was quoted earlier, often but not always a reliable source of history, comments on Genesis 10-2 mentioning Magog as the founder of the Scythian nation. Again, I'm reading from Josephus. No, I'm not reading. I, I, let me quote that. Antiquities is where that's from in uh, part one Part 6, number 1. So Gog and Magog, at the beginning of the thousand years, are, perhaps, a man and his nation. Uh, By the end, they are perhaps one name for the same land, in the farthest northern parts of inhabitable earth. This nation isolates itself from the mainstream of the earth, especially from the holy city. But now they're roused to action, a mighty, uncountable assemblage of earth's final rebels. They descend again, verse 9, southward, coming at the Holy Land. And it truly is holy at this time, not a mere tourist attraction for the religious-minded, coming, I say, from different directions until they form a huge ring around the city of Jerusalem, called here with affection the beloved city, now situated high atop a mountain, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. As 1,000 years before with Antichrist's pitiful attempt at attacking the descending Christ, Satan is not able to fire a shot before the wrathful fire of God falls on the whole company and devours them. Their purpose was to supplant. God's was to expose the last vestiges of evil. Now the earth is purged. Satan himself is this time not only arrested and imprisoned, but consigned to his final home of fire, accompanying beast and false prophet. He and they and all who have followed them shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Verses 11 to 15, we come to the white throne judgment. It's quitting time, for sure. Uh, 7,000 years of earth history, and now it's time for a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, 2 Peter 3, 7. Peter had seen this new earth, as had Isaiah. In both Peter and Isaiah, there's an understanding that does not include a 1,000-year wait. Just as in Daniel, we don't see any time between Antiochus' former and latter career. And as in other passages, such as Isaiah 9-6, where the first and second coming of Jesus are seen as one event. With John, we have the fullness of the revelation, and we rejoice in it. The first earth will be gradually restored, made new, after its cataclysmic changes associated with the tribulation and the wrath of God. At the beginning of the millennium, it will be slowly rejuvenated by the diligent work of King Jesus and his appointed governors. Then at the end, according to 20, verse 11, the earth and the heavens as we know it will flee away. They're gone. No more details than this. They're just gone but a few things remain in the from the old creation and that is the people of god who are whisked away we assume to glory to await the new creation and that'll be seen in chapters 21 and 22 and this this new world looks a whole lot like the old but it's clearly different in places too this compares to our own resurrection and change the earth too is going to be given a new body Also still on hand are the people of the devil, now ready to be judged. A great white throne appears in John's vision. As the earth vanishes away, the judgment scene somewhere in God's heavens takes place. Everyone who ever lived for 7,000 years outside the elect of God, now raised from the dead and given a resurrection body with which to stand before God. Books are opened. The records of all the details of their lives have been on file all these centuries and millennia. Heavenly files do not erode. One book is called by name the Book of Life. We've encountered this book before. In chapter 3, overcomers will not have their name blotted out of this book. And so those who do not overcome but are in fact overcome themselves by evil will have their names blotted out. 13.8 says that if a man's name is not written in the book of life of the Lamb, he worships the beast. It is within his old nature to worship something or someone, but his worship of the wrong someone shows his name is not written there. Likewise, 17.8, those who marvel at the beast and are intrigued at all by him simply are not gods. What is God then saying about the book? that those who love Jesus and do not love the world are in it, that those who do not are not. If their name is not there, they're cast into the lake of fire with those that they followed. But to make the record official and clear to all, (coughs) other books are opened. Is the Holy Bible laid out for everybody to see? (coughs) Perhaps there are the books of the works of men. Men who reject the work that Christ did for them and wanted to do in them must be judged by their own works, which the Bible elsewhere refers to as filthy rags. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, said the apostle. The final outcome of trying to be justified in this way is, according to Jesus, the resurrection of damnation. The resurrection of life is past. Too late, sinners. Too late. You are called forth to be publicly exposed before men, to give an account, and then to be damned for eternity. Yes, the earth has fled, verse 11, and before its passing there was removed for judgment evil men. Not only the men, but the place of the dead, and the spirit of death itself are now before us, needing a place to go. Death and the grave are the twin enemies defeated by Jesus when he took his own journey to that shadowy place. I read not of any hellish torment of Jesus in the grave, by the way, only that he died and preached to spirits there during his death experience. The specifics of his three days in Hades are kept from us except for that. The point here is his victory over those former masters of humanity. By showing us his conquest, he let us know that death, has lost its sting in our own lives, and the grave has lost its victory. Now, in the very first chapters of Revelation, we meet Jesus, telling us that he has the keys to the unseen realm of death. At the fourth seal in chapter 6, death is being personified and placed on a horse, accompanied by Hades, This spirit of death kills one-fourth of earth's people in these early days of the tribulation. Not until this twentieth chapter do we meet the pair again. But their work has been evident, not only through the book but through all of history. Now he who defeated them legally and has the keys to control them casts them forever into the lake of fire, which is now called the second death. Those who have been born only once, not born again, are here reminded that they must die twice. First comes the grave, and following the judgment, this lake of fire, where lives death itself. I'm going to go on to chapter 21 now. Chapter 21, The New Heavens and the New Earth. Chapter 21. The final major subject of God's message to John is a totally new heaven and earth. Now, By heaven, we understand John to mean all of the creation minus our planet, not the realm of God's residence. A study of heaven in Scripture would yield a mixed understanding. A great portion of the time it's used to describe something material. But since it is a word that points men away from earth, it's also quite often the abode of God. Here we believe the references to the same expanse as is mentioned in Genesis 1:1 at the original creation. Now before we focus as John does on each piece of that wonderful new creation, I want to point out more of that to which I have alluded earlier regarding the seeming chronological conflict raised by Isaiah and Peter. As compared to John, first, let's be certain that we agree that by this time in the narrative, chapter 21, Jesus has come. The tribulation has totally ended. The saints have been given rule over the planet for a thousand years. Evil ones have met their fate. Death is finished, and the lake of fire remains a constant reminder of God's wrath, God's justice. No place is now found for the old earth from which have escaped only its billions of people. These things we know. The first heaven and the first earth are gone. The celestial Jerusalem is at this moment about to descend, having just been populated by the citizens of old but totally glorified Jerusalem. If that is the setting of Revelation 21.1, what is the meaning of the prophet in Isaiah 65, where he also mentions a new heaven and new earth? For just after his announcement of this, he talks of death still being on the planet. The child, he says, shall die 100 years old. But is not death now banished from the realm? Yes. John insists here in 21.4, there shall be no more death. Now, could it be that there is a clean break in thought between Isaiah's verse 17 and verse 18? Thus, his first comment could be just a general statement of the future. His further comments could be backtracking into the millennial days. We believe that the man Isaiah, as all the prophets, had trouble understanding his own words and only spoke as the Spirit gave utterance. That's First Peter 1. A similar issue arises with the words of Peter. Does he agree with John's chronology? In 2 Peter 3, he informs us that the first earth, the creation of Genesis 1, perished through a flood perished here does not indicate annihilation, but rather surface destruction, including the taking away of most life forms. First Peter 3 goes on to say that our present earth is headed for a similar fate, that is, not annihilation, but destruction of the surface, this time by fire. It's interesting to me that in First Peter 3, Peter injects the idea of a thousand years. It's totally different context than John's millennium, but Perhaps this is the Spirit's hint that the millennial day of the Lord is indeed to be placed between the destruction by fire and the new earth that he mentions in verse 13. Since one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, this day could be placed there in God's thinking without affecting the thinking of the prophets or apostles when he's giving them revelation about other end things. First Peter 3 graphically describes The burning process, the melting down of earth's actual elements, so that, as John would later say, the mountains and islands, but not yet the planet, will be moved out of their place. Then comes his Isaiah-like statement that there is immediately a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, the millennium will be a time when righteousness will dwell safely and, and will reign on earth. But we must say, to stay in agreement with John's final vision, that this newness is the newness of a restored earth, not yet a recreated one. Or, Peter can be speaking the truth without realizing the full extent of his words, as the prophets were wont to do. That is, verse 13 can be taken as the actual new heaven and earth. We do look for this planet to be replaced one day, but one day far in our future. Now, there are other time issues in these chapters that can be dealt with in the text as we come to them. Just before we go there, let me once more insert some thoughts from the Kingdom Handbook regarding this very subject of the new heavens and the new earth. At that time, I wrote, Will the new earth and heaven be recognizable as the present planet? There'll be no sea, we know that but the basic requirements of water and plant life and the like seem to be evident. Perhaps we can liken this distant period to, the, as I said, the resurrection of our own bodies, wherein we'll be recognized but vastly superior. This total new creation must be seen in contrast to the renewed earth of the millennium, renewed, in fact, by man with Messiah's direct leadership. The earth will recover from its devastation and desolation, at least in part, and will be healed in most every way, getting itself ready for its final presentation to the Father by the Son. Knowledge of this is interesting in the light of the presence of those among us now, even in the Church, who are dressing things up for the return of Jesus, not knowing that His next visit is one of unimaginable wrath and fierceness. In all, Not much is said of the final state of mankind. Revelation 21, 22, reminding us of portions of Ezekiel and Isaiah, are the most complete descriptions. I say reminding because Ezekiel has the one thousand years in view, with the prince David under Christ, an actual temple, real sacrifices, a very Jewish restoration of the nation, which corresponds to the first phase of things. But in describing elements of the city, It becomes obvious that John saw the name the same city in its final form, a city that has been lifted from earth before the earth is removed, transported to heaven, then descending in chapter 21. In this final world, there's no more death. Well, not so in the millennium. Natural life will be greatly extended, but not eternal. Death itself is defeated once and for all, and cast into the lake of fire only at the end of the 1,000 years. Paul had said 30-some years earlier that he must reign until God has put every enemy under his feet. That's the purpose of that 1,000 years. And When it is over, death is finished, along with pain, the temple, the sun, night, closed gates, the curse. Enter nothing but the glory of God, the water and tree of life. Is the lake of fire still visible? Wandering forever on that old earth in the outer darkness? Wherever it is, Isaiah 65 and Revelation 22 seem to say yes, It will forever remind mankind of the justice of God. It is something God is aware of every minute, his judgment over evil, and he will give his people the grace to live with that constant also, perhaps. I give here several reasons why I believe that the new heaven and the new earth follow the 1,000 years, as opposed to being simultaneous with them, as I did believe for a short while, and many still do, and we don't condemn anyone. I'm just giving my reasoning here. Here is number one. It's, its mention is in the last two chapters of both Revelation and Isaiah. Number two, Isaiah 4 says that after the great tribulation is passed, the Lord will create a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night and protect his people or the Gentile nations from storm and rain. Well, storms... And days and nights are all a part of the old earth. And then there's some logic for number three. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God in Hebrews 4. If there will be indeed exactly 6,000 years of earth history, maybe using the Jewish calendar, before Jesus comes, a 1,000 year rest day would be in perfect order to complete that history. Number four, the rebuilding project. Isaiah 61 and 49 suggest that people will be preserved to restore the earth after its devastating blow at Armageddon and the rest. You can see Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 also. Desolate land will be tilled. God is here given credit for the restoration, but he uses man. Number five, there's that burial project. After Armageddon, there'll be seven months of burying the dead, if I understand that properly. This doesn't match with the instant recreating of a new earth. Number six, if the earth is blown up, where will the people of God go? No mention is made of an off-planet hiding place. Jesus indicates that for the elect's sake, he returns. The elect are waiting to take over the earth, and he will not disappoint them. Number seven, if the earth is immediately annihilated and replaced, how does the resurrection take place? The first, and especially the second, these wicked dead have been buried in the earth and must be raised from that earth a thousand years after Jesus comes, according to the apostle. Well, we can go to the text now in chapter 21. Please understand that the whole discussion of the coming city of God is what we think of as eternity, and it's there in a total of 32 verses in your Bible. That's all. Eternity is in your Bible, uh, in terms of a description, 32 verses. Most of what we know about the future is millennial in nature and contained in the prophets. The rest of Revelation concerns the trouble before that 1,000 years, and 32 verses here about eternity, because eternity is so far off. We won't need to know that for a long time. we got got 1,000 years to learn about it. But let's enjoy what we do know. Uh, first, again, a few details here. There is no more sea. The new earth will not be referred to, I think, as the blue planet any longer. There'll be water available, but not in those oceans. Uh, descent of the city, verse 2. The saints have once more been raptured to heaven as the earth disappears from under them. They see the city that has been so long pre- prepared for them, the new Jerusalem. Oh, they've lived in a spectacular domain for a thousand years, described in detail by the prophet Ezekiel from chapter 40 on. I know of nothing else Ezekiel could be describing but the millennial day. But now they see their eternal permanent home, and soon after they arrive, they're transported with that entire city to the newly created planet. John tells us that this city is as a bride. A thousand years earlier, there had been an announcement of a marriage supper. The lamb was to take a bride, and he did. And what a wonderful marriage they've had as co-regents of the old earth. But there's a distinctively different flavor of things in the New Jerusalem in chapter 21. It takes several readings to see it, but eventually one hears a voice from 40 years earlier, that of the apostle saying, Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom, that's his bride, to God the Father. When Jesus puts an end to all rule and all authority and power on this earth, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Isn't that exactly what we've been studying up through chapter 20? And Paul did not have John's revelation on hand when he spoke those words. Yes, Paul, uh, death in Hades, after a thousand years, cast into the lake of fire, and that last enemy is destroyed. And now a new era, as the subdued kingdom, ruled perfectly for so long, reverts back to God the Father, or whoever God is, Father, Son, Spirit. Here, Paul again in 15.28. Now, when all these things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's a significant statement. And it seems to coincide with this 21st chapter. Notice that in all these 32 eternity verses, once the city has descended, the Lamb is always mentioned in connection with God. Jesus was always subject to and united with the Father. I and my Father are one, but there is a reunification here that both Paul and John, hearing from the same Spirit, bring out to us. They're inseparable, God and the Lamb. One, as Jesus always told us, but now the saints will see somehow. Then God himself comes down, verse 3, How often have you heard it said that for all eternity the Father himself, and not just the Son of God, is going to come to earth. Have you heard that? Even though it's a new earth, it's more amenable to him to live. Haven't you rather heard sermons about us living with Jesus in heaven? We're going to go there and stay there. Notice also here that whereas before the scriptures had to describe carefully God's dealings with a specially chosen minority of earthlings, now he's just with men. Mankind. For the only men living are the redeemed the chosen from all eternity. What a happy company this. God is with men, and they shall be his people. Verse 4 talks about the end of pain. Uh, Still tears after a thousand years of Jesus' reign. Yes? Oh, yes. Uh, Loved ones and friends were perhaps caught up in the final satanic rebellion. Satan has been released from the pit allowed to recapture innumerable people from the old planet. There's the horror of the all-consuming judgment fire that fell on those armies of invaders. They had forgotten tears and sorrows of this nature for so long then there was the upheaval of saying goodbye to that old planet which had been their home for centuries but now all that's gone. Those who have said goodbye to a country can perhaps feel the wrenching here of a people without a planet at least for a short while. All seems to be in chaos Once more, the heavens are disturbed and even removed. Yes, though redeemed and in new bodies, we will have human feelings. We are not destined to be a race of robots. And then a word of encouragement in verses 5 to 8. Caught up in the midst of all this excitement, we tend to forget that all of this vision is a message dictated to John for us. John seems to have needed such a reminder here and he's especially encouraged to tell his readers that what is being said is surely true. What truths are emphasized here? God is making everything new. God is the beginning and the end. God will give life to anyone who wants it. God will be God and father to any overcomer. The second death is waiting for those who refuse God's love. And there's also a catalog of the sins of those who did not overcome. Oh, there's so much here. We'll stop right there, and we'll come together one more time, talk more about the New Jerusalem and then the closing injunctions. And uh, please join me for the end. And as I've said many times, please pass the message on, will you, that we are wanting to get this word out to others. Thank you so much for being here. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, We'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.